0: You're listening to episode 11 of the Tennis Files Podcast with special guest, Alistair McCaw. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey guys, welcome to an amazing episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. Today, I spoke with world-class sports performance specialist and coach, Alistair McCaw. Alistair has coached some of the best tennis players in the world, including Grand Slam champions, and he's also trained elite athletes from other various sports. Alistair talked about how tennis players can become better athletes and what they need to do to really push themselves to reach the next level. And Alistair also had a lot of great advice for coaches and parents on their role and how they should be supporting the athlete. I really appreciate Alistair taking his time to be on the show today and for speaking with us. And I'm extremely excited for you guys to listen in on the interview And I know that after listening to this episode, you're going to be extremely motivated and inspired to work really hard for your goals and to really set yourself apart from everyone else by pushing yourself and doing everything that you need to do to gain an edge. So without further ado, here is my interview with Alistair McCaw. Hey everyone, I'm here with Alistair McCaw, a world-class sports performance specialist, Alistair has worked with top tennis professionals such as Kevin Anderson, Svetlana Kuznetsova, Dinara Safina, Zelina Dokic, and Bernard Tomic. And uh Alistair has spoken about sports performance in over twenty-five countries. Um you can find him at the com, and he is just you know really one of the most passionate and, and motivational people that I, I've ever seen. Um I'm a big fan of his work. He posts a lot of amazing Uh, updates on his statuses uh, on social media uh, that are very motivational and really uh, get you going in the morning, So at any time, really. So uh, with that, uh, I just want to welcome Alistair to the Tennis Files podcast. How are you doing, Alistair?
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for that uh, introduction, and uh, it's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Oh, yes. No worries, Alistair. Yeah, it's it's truly a pleasure and honor to have uh, such a knowledgeable uh, sports performance coach and specialist such as you on the show so, Alistair, just uh, tell us a bit about your background, and uh, y- such as your life growing up as an athlete, and then how you got into coaching.
1: Okay. Um, well, I'm not going to make it too long and bore the, uh, bore the listeners, but uh, cut a long story short, uh, born in Northern Ireland, um, actually in the same hospital as uh, Rory McIlroy, another, another famous Irishman, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the golfer, of course, um, was uh, brought up in, in South Africa in the 80s and 90s. I uh, was educated there. I uh, started out as a tennis player when I was around about nine. Uh, got to a national level at 12, 13. Um, stopped it at 14 due to financial constraints in, in our family and just the difficulty back then. During those times, there wasn't a lot of support from the federation or, or uh, things like there is today. I uh, took up running, and uh b- became a pretty decent runner and and drew athlete and triathlete and went on to to compete in five world championships and during that time just uh started working in a gym uh, at the age of 16 uh, actually uh cleaning the restrooms and 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 vacuuming the floors in return for uh training at the gym so it could supplement my my um my training and my racing and from there grew grew a passion for the fitness industry, the, the strength and conditioning industry, um, being around like minded people. And, uh, when I was 18, I became a fitness instructor. Um, you know, uh, and then from there, personal training, uh, worked with, uh, Miss Universe, worked with a whole lot of celebrities in in South Africa uh, and sports stars, rugby, cricket, which is obviously big sports down there. And, uh, that's basically how I got my start in the industry. So, um, Definitely, uh, it wasn't from a, a, a deep educational background or I don't have the most qualifications, so to say. I do have a sports management diploma. I, I do have um, uh, various certifications, but um, I would say my my biggest achievement has just been getting out there and just working uh, my butt off and just uh, persisting and, and, and just following my passion.
0: That's amazing, Alistair. And Was there a specific event that triggered the uh, desire to get into coaching or was this a, a gradual build-up that uh, got you into this profession?
1: I think from a young age um, you know leadership comes through in, in your personality I mean I was reading an article the other day where they say by the age of five you've already, you've already got a person, personality trait you're either a leader or a follower or, or whatever and that resonates with me when you watch young kids uh, playing in the playground, for example, you'll see there'll be a leader, there'll be the more dominant ones, for example. Um, so, uh, looking at that, I love to lead people. I love to always captain the, the the soccer team or the tennis team or, or whatever it may be. And I think those qualities came through um, of loving to, uh, loving to lead people and guide people into the into the coaching side because it is about leadership, guidance, support. Um, and helping others. So I think, you know, it starts early, uh, in, in your life with, with the type of personality you are. So I think that could be, that could be it. Hmm.
0: And so as we all know, uh, passion is a huge, uh, and a very important part of, um, what makes uh, great coaches uh, such as yourself. And what in particular makes you so passionate about, uh, being a coach besides, uh, helping people? Um, Or that could be the main thing, really. Yeah,
1: pretty simple. Pretty simple answer there. It's people and seeing other people succeed. That is what coaching is all about. If you don't like to see others succeed and you don't like to help others um, get the best out of themselves, then you're not going to be passionate about coaching. Because that is what coaching is all about. Coaching is not about egos. Coaching is not about um, yourself. It's about serving others, being there for others, and putting others first. So um definitely that passion um you know i grew from a young age i i just always love to be helping people i'd love to be uh taking that new that new kid in, in the group or that new teammate and taking them by around around the arm and saying hey or around the shoulder and saying hey don't worry i got you you know and um i think that's what it's about it's about loving people
0: yeah, listen. and uh, I mean, really what, what coaches do can arguably uh, be said to be the most important thing that people can can do on the earth, because uh, they're really, they're guiding people and helping them achieve their potential, and that is just a really, truly wonderful service. Um, exactly. And, yeah, for sure. And so, when a coach first starts a relationship with a tennis player or athlete, uh, what would you say is the first thing that a coach should do in this situation?
1: Two things. Um, Definitely having your standards set. You know, I always said, all, all starts with your standards. And the standards you have for yourself, the standards you have for your company, your business, your environment you're working in, and the standards you have for your athletes. So it's important that those athletes or those clients you're going to be working with understand your standards. Standards are another way of saying rules. However, rules have a little bit of a negative type of feel to it, as in, okay, here are our rules, for example. Standards are more, um, let's say, acceptable, and they give the athlete more accountability and responsibility, like they are in charge of, of what they're doing. And they like that. Athletes like that. Um, so that's an incredibly important thing is they, they understand their, their, their standards. Uh, second of all, connection. You cannot direct if you can't connect. And you can't change something in an athlete's program, especially an elite athlete, if they don't trust you. So there's got to be a connection there before you direct. And I think this is something that a lot of coaches um, make the big mistake because they might see things right. They might see the changes that need done, but they come in there far too quickly wanting to fix things. And they haven't won the trust of the athlete to get into those areas and, and, um, and make the changes. So I think those two things, setting your standards and making the connection.
0: I've listened to a couple of your past interviews and you have stressed a lot about the importance of a, a coach getting to know um, the player and, and you've talked about, you know, getting to know their, their likes and dislikes. And can you kind of talk a bit about the, the strategies like that that will help forge the relationship closer?
1: Well, I mean, I can just give you an example. Um, You know, before I I started working with a world champion in squash, uh, Rami Ashur, uh, two years ago, I didn't know that much about him. I knew he was a very successful athlete. He's three-time world champion. He's been number one. So, you know, you see these things. However, I didn't know him personally. So it was important for me to do as much research research as possible. Uh, Maybe like spy work, if you like. But knowing what he loves to do in his spare time knowing what food he enjoys knowing what um, his hobbies and his interests are which countries he's been to does he speak other languages etc cetera, etc cetera. and and tapping into those areas that when we sit down we have a common interest and, or we can find common interest to talk about not just about squash tennis golf whatever the sport may be of the athlete so connection is made not through necessarily through the sport or experiences in the specific sport, but in other life experiences, that is where coaches can win the connection with the athlete. And especially in today's world with technology, social media—you um, know—we have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, all these type of things. We as coaches need to embrace that. You know, you, you cannot have that attitude of, "Well, that's for the new younger generation and teenagers and so on and so forth." We need to, as coaches, embrace that, understand it. And and go with it. And these are things that we can make connection with today's generation especially because we're we're dealing with the IY generation. IY generation is the internet generation born from 1994 and afterwards. And if we cannot uh, tap into them and connect with them, we're going to have difficulty coaching them because it's not about the skills, drills, X's, no's. It's about the connection we have with that person.
0: I I did hear that you're actually reading a a book or read a book on that topic. Can you tell us the name of that book? Uh, Is it the IY Generation?
1: IY Generation by Tim Elmore. Um, It's a fantastic book that's definitely uh, helped me understand this generation a little bit better and and embrace this generation. I think there is a newer version that's come out, but it's definitely a book I'd recommend to to all the listeners out there. I, you know, I, I believe that the future coach or today 's coach and future coach is someone that can connect with the generations that are coming through someone that is up to date with the changes in the te- technology and embraces them and um, you know that doesn't mean you have to be a an i t expert or you have to be up to date with every single little thing that's going on in the in the, um, the cyber world, but it's you understand what our gener- uh, what this this generation coming through are um, how they 're communicating how they 're socializing uh, you know sometimes i've i 've known the results of some of my athletes online or on twitter before they've they 've told me so you know it's these are valuable sources and valuable tools that we can use as coaches
0: yeah, for sure Alistair. I mean it definitely um, shows how much you are invested in the athlete and then in return they 're going to uh you know you 're going to earn their trust uh, So we've talked about some great strategies for coaches, but um, on the other hand, can you tell us uh, maybe a a couple uh, crucial mistakes that coaches make when working with players and parents?
1: I think, uh, you know, we've touched on it already. Um, They they don't set their standards from day one. They don't make them clear enough where the boundaries are, what's accepted, what's not accepted, how we run things around here. For example, time management, uh, address code, communication, these type of things, those aren't clearly um, communicated. Second of all, expectations. Expectations of the athlete. We've got to understand that parents have expectations that are three, four, five times higher than our expectations as coaches or their kids. Every parent thinks that their kid is going to be the next champion, or should I say most parents think their kid is going to be the next Wimbledon champion or US Open champion whatever it may be. So, we have to lay those expectations down because if you're going along with that as a coach and saying yes, 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 I agree and their kid isn't getting to a certain level by the age of 12, 14, etc., then they're not going to believe in your in your stories and your theories and and your methodology anymore, for example. The third biggest mistake I believe is that coaches want to jump in and fix everything as fast as they can without giving that time to connect and to better understand the athlete. And, you know, we've got two ears, one mouth. So, in in my opinion, we've got to listen twice as much as we speak. And I think this is a big mistake coaches make is that we want to talk. We want to fill the gaps instead of uh, using that time to actually listen and take as much information as possible from um, the athlete and, and the parents themselves. Because they know that child or that athlete better than we do as coaches. So, um, you know, those would be the three things I'd feel that, that, that coaches make mistakes in.
0: Fantastic, Alistair. Appreciate that. And so, uh, speaking to the parents, uh, what is the optimal role that a parent can play to, uh, best support their, their children who want to be a future, uh, elite athletes?
1: Well, I just think you said the, the, the key word there is support and unconditional love.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not putting expectations and and unnecessary pressure on that kid, especially if they begin to start to do well in a sport, for example. Um, but their role is to facilitate, um, support, encourage, love, uh, unconditionally, regardless of how that kid wins, loses, whatever level they may be. Um, not to compare with other kids. You know you, you hear that you know like why don't you do it like Jill or why don't you 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 um work as hard as mark for example those are not good good ways to encourage a kid in a sport so those would be the main uh roles of a parent is is to support obviously not to coach and uh, you know that's an area I spend a lot of time in when I do do the workshops with with uh coaches or academies, and we'll have some time along for the parents as well and and those are the areas we we look at in terms of the right things to say uh, before a match or when you're in the car, for example. The, the right things to say on the way home from a match or from a competition, for example. So uh, it is our job as coaches to educate parents. So it is our job to understand what the roles are, make them clear from day one, the standards and the expectations of each person's role. It's athlete-driven. Or should I say, sorry, athlete-centered, parent-supported, and coach-driven. And that's how it should be.
0: Beautifully put. So, Alistair, shifting to the player. You know, in tennis, uh, a lot of players, when they make errors, they tend to focus more on their stroke technique and things like that, but I think... A lot of athletes neglect, or I'm sorry, a lot of tennis players neglect the role of being a, a better athlete. So, can you talk to us about the importance of being an athlete and the impact it has on a tennis player's uh, game and career?
1: Well, we just have to look at all the best um, athletes out there today, and, and you'll see that more than 70, 80% played multiple sports up until the age of 13, 14. Um, you know, I've given. A lot of examples of athletes I've worked with, for example, uh, Xavier Melis, Bernard Tomic, Alex Bogomolov Jr., uh, Svetlana Kiznetsov, these, these athletes are all, uh, or these players are all great athletes. They can play basketball. They can play soccer. They can play sports. They're not just one-dimensional and only know how to hit a tennis ball. And you find this also with um, – you, know, you look at athletes like Jordan Spieth. He was uh, a really good football and, and baseball player up until the age of 14, 13, 14. So, we need to understand that um, better players come from better athletic backgrounds, not just from a skills point of view, from athletic skills or a neuromuscular point of view, but from a, um, an ability to withstand the pressures of the training load that's going to be happen- happening if they're getting more serious. So, their bodies are more able to withstand um, uh, impact, force, uh, they're less injured, for example you'll see a lot of players that have just been one-dimensional, especially kids around about the age of 15, 16, that have just been playing one sport are more injured than kids that have been playing multiple sports. Plus, the, the hours and time from a young age of just playing one sport, the risk of burnout by the age of 14, 15 is, is quadrupled in terms of that that kid has only just played one sport, for example. And I have seen with my own eyes and some of the travels I've done around the world and and visiting in academies, really, really good 14, 15-year-old tennis players that aren't great athletes. And I can tell you that they're only going to get so far and no further. Number one, they're either going to get burned out, number two, injured, or number three, they just don't have the athleticism of what it takes to get to the top because this is an incredibly physical game right now. And uh, we just have to look at the top and see how Novak is dominating. Somebody that is just an incredible athlete that spends, spent and, and spends a lot of time on his flexibility, his mobility, his, um, his physical training. Uh, I mean I was in Indian Wells two weeks ago, California, and witnessed his warm-up, which, which took between an hour and a half and two hours, hmm. consisting of at least 30 to 40 mobility and flexibility exercises before – he started his agility and movement warm up, and that just shows you what type of athletes we're dealing with today
0: uh, that's that's truly amazing and staggering to uh to pretty much everyone to hear that that's amazing um and so you know on this uh podcast, I've had a couple athletes such as uh world number thirty Tread Huey and doubles uh but, have a rocket serve, and, and I, he told me that he played a lot of baseball when he was young. So what I'd like to ask you is, uh, what are some other sports that best translate to tennis that you would encourage other tennis players to, uh, perhaps take up?
1: I mean, this could, this can be a personal thing, but, um, my two favorites for sure are soccer for the foot skills and, and the, um, space and positional awareness on a field of looking for gaps, of anticipating movements, anticipating specific uh, uh, places where you're going to be playing the ball, and basketball because of the hand skills and the, the incredible agility skills you get from basketball. So those are two great sports that, that I love to uh, mix into to some of the training of the athletes I work with. But there's other sports, for example, that I've um, incorporated into the junior programs, especially that include um, a mixture of I, I call it handball but it 's a mixture of of netball um, basketball um, you know where you you work with different skills neuromuscular skills of only catching the ball one hand a tennis ball one hand a non dominant hand uh, using basketballs tennis balls uh, all these type of things you know so um, you know a coach can be uh, creative and 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 you know bring out a lot of games there and have the kids play. I mean, even like uh, hockey, for example, uh, using the the rackets as the hockey sticks and and having four aside or three kids aside and two goals near the side. Those are great things to to um, create a great energy, a great spirit, a great warm up, and and of course, great agility drills.
0: That's fantastic, Alistair. And so, let's say if we have a player who now. Uh, understands uh, how important it is to be uh, a better athlete. What are some of the basic fundamentals that you would tell this tennis player that uh, he or she should concentrate on to become a better athlete?
1: Doing the small things uh, incredibly well and consistently well. Warming up well, preparing well, um, making sure that they, they have the right foods, the right drinks, the right snacks, the right clothes, the right shoes, uh, all these small little things that are so important that, that, again, these are things that we give accountability and responsibility to. The overlooked things. I I can always tell the quality of a coach's program and the dedication of an athlete by just watching their warm-up. If their warm-up is sloppy, they're cutting corners, um, it's half-hearted, then you already see where the mindset of the athlete is or the the quality of the program of that coach. So. You know, Coach Wooden, the, the, the uh, legendary basketball coach, would even take notes watching the warm ups of, of his players. That's how detailed Coach Wooden was, making sure that everything, all those areas that um, people mostly overlook, were taken care of. But if I could give advice to a young athlete, that would be listen well to your coach. Um, when you step onto that court, everything is professional, everything is done the best of your ability, be it the warm up. Be it uh, the drills, the, the exercises, whatever it may be, um, and then understand that the mindset uh, that you develop is practiced on, or, or it's taken from the practice court. You just don't all of a sudden become a positive person on, in a match or com- competition. You'd like to think you do, but um, you know you don't rise to to your levels. You you sink to you sink to the habits that you've created in your practices. So. Make sure those habits and your practices are are the best uh, they can be, and, and um, you know that's going to come out under pressure situations in your in your competition.
0: Fantastic, Alistair. and this is what you commonly refer to as the one uh, percent. Is that right?
1: Those are the one percent. Yeah, um, the one percent are just doing those small things incredibly well, uh, making sure you're well hydrated, uh, having a protein shake after a practice to delay. Uh, you know your body's in a catabolic uh, state Um, getting good sleep getting good nutrition Uh, these are all the one percents that are controllables that so many athletes don't get get right they think it's the bigger things and how how many hours of training they're doing for example when it's not Um, so yeah getting all those one percents in in place Uh, another great example of a one percent was coach Wooden teaching his players how to tie their laces properly. And you might laugh at that, but with two seconds on the buzzer and your lace comes undone and you can't get to that ball, that's game over. And these are small little things that that, that we call the 1%s, taking care of the 1%. Right.
0: And, um, you know, the game and matches are, are, I mean, the margins are razor thin. It just takes uh, one point or so uh, and that'll decide the match. So uh, these 1%s are extremely important. Um exactly yeah for sure and and so alistair um can you tell us maybe just a couple of your favorite drills that you uh like to employ uh with your players to improve their agility speed and balance
1: um what what drills i do is that what you're asking
0: yeah perhaps maybe one or two uh, on court or off court uh yeah just any type of drill
1: well obviously it's difficult to explain that over um over a podcast and not seeing it but I'm going to keep it very simple. I go over fundamentals 80% of the time. How to properly lateral shuffle, how to properly decelerate, how to properly accelerate, how to change direction. Fundamentals that are repeated over and over and over. Those are 80%. I can tell you that observing one of my lessons would probably be boring or uninteresting for for an observer because I go over the fundamentals of uh, learning the posture, the body position, the the um the correct uh, ground force application of of the feet, all these things that that are important for an athlete to move well. I'm not, you know, 10 years ago I was big into finding the latest drills and 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 spills and thrills uh on the internet of what was going on and and thinking that was what, you know, great agility was. It isn't. It's going over the fundamentals. So, like I said, um, watching or observing one of my practice sessions would probably be pretty boring. Or thinking, "Well, hey, there's nothing special there." Um, that is exactly where the secret lies to success: is is uh, repeating the fundamentals and and doing them consistently well.
0: Oh, that's very powerful advice, sir. Appreciate that as well. If- I'm sorry I couldn't
1: give you guys any any fancy new <laughs> drills or fun things. Or uh, I'm doing the T drill or Whatever it may be, but that's what it comes down to. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's not going to excite a lot of people, but the fundamentals aren't sexy. But boy, do they get results.
0: Mm-hmm. No, definitely agreed. And so, Alistair, I've heard you talk about uh, the importance of stretching and how uh, it arguably was the most important part of uh, of, of Novak's rise. and And can you talk to and speak to people who think that? Who who say that they don't have the time to stretch and 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 how important stretching is?
1: Well, those who don't have the time to stretch now are going to have to find time for uh, the physio table later. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's right.
1: That, that, that's what it comes down to because it's just it's just waiting to happen. Um, you know, you can get away with it when you're a kid. You can get away with it maybe in your early twenties, but you don't get away with it once you get to your mid twenties, late thirty, uh, uh, late twenties, early thirties. It catches up with you. And it's definitely one thing that has stunted um, the longevity of of a lot of athletes' careers. You know, where they're they're still great players, but they're they're just getting injured into their late twenties or, or early thirties. So um, again, there's there's a one percent. How much time are you putting into your your stretching, your flexibility, your regeneration, your foam rolling, your preparation? Are you doing the extra f- fifteen minutes a day at home by yourself? Um, great athletes are self-motivated to do these things by themselves. They don't have to wait for their coach or their their mom or dad to say, "Hey, go stretch." Hey, go cool down. Um, hey, have you done your foam rolling? For example, they're motivated to do these things because they understand those are the areas where they can gain an advantage on on other athletes. So, um, you know, we use a simple system with the McCall Method stretch strap, which is four simple stretches after training. Now. You can say, well, only four stretches. Uh, I I've tried to give athletes ten, fifteen stretches that I feel are necessary after a practice, but it doesn't work. It's too much. I keep it realistic, and if I can get my athletes to stretch these four simple stretches, which take three minutes per leg, um, I've achieved something that is better than nothing, or that is better than they sometimes do it and they sometimes don't. You know, it's it's part of that deal where hey. You've got 5 6 minutes to do these four stretches. They're going to work around the hip, you know, we're going to work around the hamstring, we're going to work around the quad, the hip flexor, the QL, the lower back, etc. Um do those every day, do those consistently every day, and um, over a year you've built up 20 30 hours of of flexibility and mobility work. Is that going to make a difference? You bet it is.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, it's really crucial to recovery and flexibility and and um you know, I think now um, more people are are understanding the difference between dynamic and static stretching. Um, but is it correct to assume that we would uh, optimally do dynamic stretching before uh, a competition, then static after? How is the general arrangement? Uh, how should we be splitting time with those?
1: Yeah, um, you definitely want to prepare the body where you're you're working through movement preparation before you play. So, you know, you're going to be putting your your uh, joints your muscles into positions that they're going to be they're going to be performing when you play so that's why it's important to work through a dynamic um uh, flexibility program before you play so for example tennis is multi-directional we'll be we'll be putting in some linear stretch lunges for example we'll be putting in some side lunges uh we'll be putting in some uh hamstring stretches for example because we're going to be exhilarating uh so yeah you you Specifically, prepare those uh, dynamic flexibility exercises for the nature of the the movements and the sport you 're going to be playing afterwards the body 's nice and warm the blood 's still flowing we get an adv- what I call an advantage window of being able to straight away after practice sit down, take out the stretch strap, and uh, uh, work on the range of motion because that body 's nice and warm we can we can take that leg a little bit more, more, more uh, backwards. We can take that leg out to the side a little bit more further. We can get more range in the adductors. We can get more range in the hip flexors. So, um, you know, they talk about, well, I'm going to, you know, some, some kids will say or some athletes will say, well, I'm going to go home and stretch. No, that's not good enough because we've got to take advantage of that window straight after training to stretch straight away because we can get more range when the body's warm, when there's a good core uh, body temperature.
0: Right. And Alistair, something that uh, some of our uh, audience has, has asked is um, in regards to uh, the weight room, is there an ideal rep range or set number that tennis players should be f- uh, following or does that just depend whether you're on off-season or on-season?
1: There's not a huge difference because I believe you should be training all components all year round. Speed should be trained all year round. Endurance should be trained all around, round. Strength should be trained all year round. So Yes, we do have a period, for example, in the off-season, let's call it December, to do a little bit more heavier work, if we want to call it that. But range, anywhere between 8 and and 15 repetitions, uh, depending on what you're looking for. Um, During season, I'll usually have my athletes on a range of, say, 12 to 15 repetitions, 3 sets, 4 sets, very basic stuff. Um, But again, it all depends on the athlete. What can they handle? What can they take? uh what is their history been in in the weight room that's another area uh you can't just take generally take 6 or 10 14 year olds and give them all the same program because some might have no history in the in the weights area and some might have a vast history there in in the weight area so all these things are all all um different when it comes to that area that is why it's so important that we you find a strength and conditioning coach that understands the athlete that understands the workload, that understands the history and what that athlete can do and can't do.
0: So when a player gets injured, um, you know, what should their approach be? Should they be trying to strengthen other areas of their body? Or I mean, what what is the optimal approach once the player gets injured uh, to get them back on the court uh, or field as soon as possible?
1: Well, first things first, they need to get the best advice. They need to obviously get great medical advice and then um, taken through the various stages of how they're going to uh, re- rehab that and get back, but I always say that a, a setback like an injury is a great, a great uh, opportunity for a great comeback. So there's always something you can do. You know, um, if you've injured an ankle, there's always areas you can work on. For example, the hips, the glutes, the core, upper body, rotational power. Uh, increase the range of motion in the rotators, shoulders, etc. There's always things you can do, and vice versa. Injury to the upper body, for example, you can strengthen those legs. You can still do cardio. You can still work on, on um, things in the lower limbs, for example. So, you know, again, that is another area that I believe is on the athlete—the passion and the hunger of the athlete. Is someone who wants to do, who just wants to work out, get better, train hard. They're always like, you know, they're almost pushy and and irritating you know like oh well i can do this or maybe i can do that and and hey i i can do that and and you know they're they're, they're always looking for ways to get better and not being told uh hey get into the gym and you can work on other things those are the small differences between the players and the athletes that that go on to great things and the players that don't the ones that are like oh okay this is a good chance just to chill out and <laughs> play more xbox and do whatever and goof off um you know, the passionate players are are always looking for, for things to do, even when they're injured.
0: How can you prevent imbalances?
1: Well, the way I work with imbalances are two things, specifically two things, if I can call it that, is I believe in alignment. So I'll have my athletes visit a chiropractor once a month to, to be aligned, uh, hips and, um, and the spine. And I do that myself as a coach. And, uh, and second of all, working in a more unilateral way of training, single leg, um, one side of the body, uh, working at, at a time, and, um, and, then, uh, and then bilateral strength after that. So when we, when we train with, for example, one leg off the ground, we're strengthening that one side, which is starting to, to, to strengthen the body and balance the body um, individually. So single leg squat, for example, training on my, my strong leg, I do 10 reps. Train, training on my, my weaker leg, I might struggle to do 10 reps. But if I've got both feet on the ground, then my right leg is always going to be doing more of that work. It might be 20%, 30%, for example. So with both feet on the ground, I might be getting stronger, but my stronger side is still stronger than my weaker substantially because it keeps when it gets fatigued, And it wants to keep pushing off on that stronger side. So to create imbalances, we need to include more unilateral strength training, opposite arm to opposite leg, uh, lunges, single leg uh, squats, um, split squats, single arm shoulder press, single arm row, all these type of exercises that are are working one side of the body at a time. Working with dumbbells, working with medicine balls, BOSUs, Uh, resistance tubes. These are all great ways to to strengthen the body in a unilateral way. So um, basically, in a nutshell, that comes down to not training on machines. Is there a place for machines in the program? Absolutely. I would say 20% of the time I use machines, sometimes use a leg press, uh, leg extension, for example. However, we need to understand that sport is in a standing, upright position, unless you're rowing, of course. But in tennis, for example, you're standing on your two feet. When you move, you're taking one foot off the ground. So we need to be stable. We need to be balanced. We need to be strong on one single leg at a time.
0: Fantastic advice about imbalances and unilateral strength. Um, Alistair, I I had a fan question uh, regarding uh, your thoughts on diet and nutrition. So is there a certain diet that you think's best, or does it just vary among the uh, athlete?
1: Um, it varies among, amongst the athlete, amongst the athletes. I mean, we look at Novak, it's, it's what we can call extreme, but again, there's another 1% of why he is the best. He takes care of all those little areas, but you know, definitely for athletes, it, it it's, it it can be different, you know? Um, however, when I work with an athlete, it is definitely an area I like to look into. Again, I've got to make that connection before I can make any changes. However, the small things are they getting a good breakfast? Are they hydrating consistently throughout the day? Um, are they getting enough protein? Are they getting the right amount of carbohydrates? Are they taking the right vitamins and supplements to help them with, with their recovery and with their, their preparation? These are all things you need to look into. You need to get the big rocks right first. Um, you know, and, and one of the biggest areas most athletes fail is that they just don't have a good enough breakfast. They're in a rush out of the house. To get to training, um, or they're maybe having a, a breakfast that consists of too much sugar. They're having cereals that are loaded with sugar and, and who knows what, Cocoa Pops and whatever you have out <laughs> there. Um, you know, you've got to treat your, your body like a car. You know, you, if you're driving a Ferrari, you're going to be putting premium uh, super fuel in it, you're not going to be putting the cheapest fuel in it. So, you know, you've got to think of yourself as a car. How are you treating the car? How are you maintaining the car? Are you maintaining that car every every day? Are you checking the tires? Are you checking the 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 um the suspension? Are you checking all these type of things that need to be checked or are you just letting it go for example um, the quality of your fuel is exactly the same as the the quality of your nutrition what What fuel are you putting into your body junk well you're going to get junk performance That's how it works
0: yeah, beautiful advice Alistair. Um you know, Alistair has a, a training session coming up soon, so I'm just going to try to shove in a few fan questions in here.
1: And it's my and it's my own training session.
0: <laughs> oh, it's your own training, that's right. I'm training
1: myself, yes.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, Alistair is uh I think you're training for a marathon, is that right?
1: Um, well, quite a few actually, but obviously the big one this year is New York. So, um preparation has started and and uh you know, this is one thing I want to tell the viewers out there, especially coaches that the most important appointment of the day is with yourself. You've got to make that time for yourself otherwise in this business of serving others um, you're gonna you're gonna neglect yourself neglect your your health uh so yep yeah, that's why I said that's that's the most important appointment of the day is with myself it's my my stretching in the morning for twenty minutes and then it's my my running or my strength session in the afternoon
0: for sure I mean alistair clearly uh you know, he he walks the walk, and he needs to look after his health and longevity as well. Because if you can't, um, if you're not healthy, then you can't serve others.
1: Exactly, and that's a big area. I've been, um, you know, my book is coming out in June, and um, it's it's seven seven keys to being a great coach. And one of those areas is about investing in yourself as a coach, and uh, a, a big section of that is about taking care of your own health and taking care of your own wellness, and making that time for yourself, which in coaching is so important because we can become a slave to the program, we can become a slave to the athletes. Uh our weekends are taken and uh it's just so important. If you know you can't give energy if you don't have it. So that's a big area.
0: Fantastic Alistair. So let's see with the fan questions, um Victor from Maryland, he's curious about matches in extreme heat. So he asks how do you firstly prepare for a match in extreme heat and then, what should you do during the match? And then, how can you recover quickly from from this uh, type of uh, environment?
1: All right, good question. I'm going to keep it simple. Sure. Uh, prepare in those conditions. Um, so, when it's don't always plan your practices when it's in the cool of the day. For example, early morning or late evening. Uh, sometimes, maybe once or twice a week, go out in the middle of the day. Maybe shorten your practice. So, if you usually have a practice for an hour and a half, maybe do an hour in the heat. Second of all hydration doesn't just start when you walk on the court. Hydration starts the day before. So what am I saying? Hydration is all the time. You can't just be uh, all of a sudden drinking a lot of fluid on the court. That is trying to catch up. Your body is in 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 a delayed process the whole time. It's working eight hours before. So your body is already in a dehydrated state when you wake up. Why? Because you've been sleeping under your blankets, your body's warm, and you've actually been sweating through the night, so you've been losing fluid. So there is one. The minute you wake up, get into the great habit of having a glass of water, getting your body into a hydration status. Drink a lot of water. Drink before, drink during, and drink after. Stay well hydrated. Another area is wear a hat, wear sun cream. We lose a lot of energy through uh, burning of the skin and through the heat through through the head. So those are just three simple tips that I'm sure he's heard before or your listeners have heard, but these are three simple tips that I still today need to remind the elite athletes I work with. So I hope those help, Victor.
0: I appreciate that. And uh, Doug, who's a head coach uh, of the Tennessee team Towson University, is wondering about your thoughts on distance running for stamina and, um, and what is the best way to train your stamina for tennis players.
1: Okay. You've got to look at the sport and train specific to the sport. So does endurance uh, uh, running help? No. You could be doing something a lot more worthwhile. So for example, doing interval type of work, um, hill training, for example, uh, which is increasing your, your strength endurance. Those would be better options. Even training in the sand um, where you know, you're know you still getting a, a great Um, effect on the cardiovascular system a strength element as well so you can have intervals for example of 2 minutes uh, on the sand sprints for example uh, followed by a 2 minute recovery we can do hill sprints 100-200 yard hill sprints for example or longer if you want to increase that endurance but we need to understand that tennis players don't run further than for example 5 yards 10 yards uh, in in the furthest distance before they have to stop again and excuse me if I'm wrong there, because I work in meters, which is a a European metric, but you're you're not running far before you have to stop again. So our energy systems and our muscular systems are a lot different to, for example, an endurance runner who's consistently working on, let's say, for example, a thousand strides per mile. Um, That is a different system altogether. So, you know, if he enjoys taking the, the group out f- for a three-mile run once a week, no problem. However, if you're doing long runs um, at sixty percent or seventy percent of your your maximum heart rate, thinking that's going to improve your endurance on the court, um, it's not going to be a great a, a great difference. There's better things you can be doing in that time. For example, like I said, sand sprints, hill hill intervals or even intervals in the track, for example. Those would be better options.
0: Great, Alistair. One last fan question very quickly. Paul from Virginia. Ice baths, are they effective for recovery?
1: Um, personally speaking, I haven't felt a huge advantage on it. When I was training for seven marathons and seven half marathons in seven weeks, I uh, tried a whole lot of Um, I used myself as an experiment to see what would work best and what the athlete goes through. So I fatigued my body and hurt my body over those seven weeks quite a bit running those distances. Um, The biggest, believe it or not, the biggest area where I found the most benefit was consistent myofascial release, foam rolling, Mm -hmm. um, self-massage, and uh, flexibility consistently. I tried cryotherapy in the cryotherapy tanks. I tried ice baths. Um, I, I'm not going to say they do help or they don't. However, I didn't see a huge um, difference in my performance or the way I felt the next day. Uh, but, however, I'm not saying they don't work because uh, a lot of athletes I've spoken to swear by it. Um, I, I would say on the tour right now, it's it's divided with the 50-50 of athletes who use it and don't. However... Um, and this might relate to Victor as well, in extreme heat conditions, uh, above 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius, I'll have my athletes get in a, um, ice bath after a, a, um, a training session or a match that consists of two hours or longer. So hopefully that answers the question.
0: Fantastic, Alistair. Uh, and just, yeah, any, uh, last words of wisdom, uh, for, uh, players and coaches on, uh, becoming better athletes and coaches
1: well what you're doing right now if you're listening to this podcast um and you've got this far congratulations and i hope i haven't bored you guys too much <laughs> um if you're listening to podcasts and you're reading and you're doing these things you are ahead of the 99 percent who aren't and invest in yourself listen to podcasts read good books um, associate yourself with with experienced coaches. This is how you're going to grow as a coach, and uh, there's no better investment you can make in yourself. So I want to congratulate you and um, give you that that advice that just keep investing in yourself and keep um, keep wanting to learn lo- uh, learn and grow.
0: Fantastic, Alistair. And where can our audience find you?
1: Um, Twitter at Alistair McCall, uh, Facebook McCall Method, and Um, my email is mccawmethod, M-C-C-A-W-M-E-T-H-O-D dot com. Oh, sorry. I think I might've messed that up. McCawmethod at A-O-L dot com. My apologies.
0: No worries, Alistair. I'll definitely post that in the show notes. Um,
1: I got lost on that one. Sorry. (laughs)
0: No No worries. No worries, Alistair. Well, uh, I just want to really, uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Uh, for bringing on the show and for just the uh, the impact that you've had on so many individuals and for your passion and motivation, um, it's truly appreciated. And and you're providing everyone with a great service. And I really encourage everyone to to check out Alistair's uh, website and social media pages because you're going to benefit a lot just from reading uh, his updates. It's going to really pump you up. So, um, Alistair, thanks so much. I uh, wish you all the best uh, with the book coming out. I'll definitely uh, grab a copy. And, um, you know, thanks so much for being on the show. Cool. Thanks, guys. I hope you learned a ton from my interview with Alistair McCaw. Uh, I just really took great pleasure in absorbing all the information from Alistair through all his experiences coaching the best athletes in the world. And again, Alistair, thank you so much for your time today. If you'd like to get the show notes for this episode, you can visit tennisfiles.com/slash/11. I want you to take Alistair's advice to heart and really implement the advice that he talked to us about today. Um, He's had experience with the greatest athletes. And he knows what it takes to become a champion. And so if you are motivated to become a better tennis player and a better athlete and you implement his advice, then you will be on your way to reaching your tennis potential. So uh, I'd I'd really appreciate also if you guys would take the time to uh, write a review for the Tennis Files podcast Uh, If you have some time, uh, you can just go to TennisFiles.com slash iTunes, and also subscribe if you want to get the episodes that I publish uh, immediately downloaded to your podcast app. I wish you guys all the best, and I just want to read you a quote that is really inspiring to me. And this quote is from General George S. Patton, and he wrote, You must be single-minded. Drive for the one thing on which you have decided. So I want you all, again, to just focus on your goals. Pick one thing that you want to improve upon and just go out there and figure out what you need to do and do it. So I wish everyone the best. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tennis Files Podcast. And I look forward to serving you and helping you to become a better tennis player. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.